You're listening to the lucky 13th episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional church climate not working out, but it is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to retain some connection to God, despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 13. Maybe, Someday. As I'm sure you've noticed, the various songs in this podcast were assembled into an order that made them say things, with them having been written as lyrics, composed as songs, and certainly recorded into a final version completely out of that sequence. With this song, it's hard to decide what album to put it on and where. I can't decide if this song belongs on various albums or if it falls between them all. And like this song, I felt at least as between everything as usual back in the day. As a Plymouth Brethren teen, I've been raised to expect that I shouldn't feel at home in this world, but was waiting to feel at home in heaven, the only place I truly belonged now. Still on earth, we were to view ourselves, so to speak, as caught between the evil world that tortured and killed our precious Savior, from which we could expect nothing better, and an eternity in heaven. We were trained to view ourselves as beings of spirit whose embarrassing, wayward bodies no longer fit who we really felt we were inside. In my case, maybe this training was a bit too effective. Some churches make sure the church experience is designed to help you not screw up while still here on earth, being ambassadors of heaven. Others that I only heard about tried to create a preview, a foretaste of heavenly bliss for you in the worship experience there weekly. I'm from the former group, raised to feel between, not belonging here. Most of my ability to really feel for the various of my students who increasingly identify as trans, right in the middle of the messiest and most confusing part of adolescence, and what makes me worry on their behalf, is that I do know what it feels like to feel so between all the options. Although I've always seen being male as right for me, though not everyone around me has always respected my form of masculinity, for example, liking poetry, but not songs, I do know about feeling between, of there being nowhere for me, not between the two sexes, not forming part of a gender identity that doesn't line up with those two options, but just looking at society, at the tide of the various different kinds of people going on about their lives, and feeling like there was absolutely no place that I fit, as is. I know being trans would be quite different from that, and a lot harder, but I found even my own between feeling during adolescence and young adulthood of looking at society and thinking someone like me couldn't belong anywhere, plenty hard enough that suicidal ideation was a constant visitor during that time. And so now, when I see depressed people, they worry me. And I'm pretty much always teaching one or two trans students any given semester, which has been a constant since 2015 when the stats spiked. And in the intervening years, I have never taught a trans kid who wasn't anxious and depressed, so I keep an eye. This is a song about feeling tossed aside, abandoned, not valued, disregarded, not taken into consideration when anything much was planned out, and consequently, entirely lacking any place to be. If heaven was off in the future, it sure wasn't any great comfort now. This is one of my most requested songs, and it's the most hymn-like, though it does the opposite of wax sentimental at thoughts of heaven, and it's the most self-pitying. Ultimately, it's a song about having a bad day. 
I was working at Nortel Networks and was having a particularly bad shift in October of 1999, and a song came into my head as I walked home afterward. In fact, two songs. But I only ever recorded this one. Things hadn't gone well that day. Buses don't run to the stop near my job after 10, and I've been scheduled to work late, until 11. And it was a blustery October in Canada, and it was cold and getting colder, and I had time to walk a few miles home and think about my day and about walking home at night in January. A certain bass player who wasn't Adam Fogo had declined to play on any more songs after I'd been pleased with his work on my first few. I'd phoned him on a break from work after he hadn't returned a message I'd left him, offering him more work. He said he wasn't interested. He didn't say why, so I just assumed he didn't like my music or want his name associated with it. It's just as likely he had other, more lucrative and prestigious projects to work on, but I'm naturally paranoid. I think he felt too professional to work with amateurs. Another phone call that shift I'd made had been to a girl I'd started to form a connection to, and just as quickly, that door had been slammed shut in the phone call I'd made that day. She played on an album for me once. The singer in her band was starting to date my sister. Also, I'd been given the news that I was being laid off my job too that day, so I was, like the song says, walking home feeling underjoyed. I walked home in a foul mood, deafened by a stiff wind, and a song came to me. It was kind of bluesy. It kind of went, I phoned a bass player. He said that he'd play for me. Now he's not going to. He says he's busy. And it makes me feel special. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel special. 38 special. There was also a verse for the girl and a verse for the job. I was thinking of a grimly humorous song with suicidal ideation in it, to be clear. The idea was that if ever a day was pushing me to do something desperate to myself, it was a day like this one. So I sang that song a couple of times as I walked in the dark loudly over the wind, wondering whether I'd record it or not, and suddenly a second song came into my head out of nowhere, the first song operating as an odd kind of practice run for it. It was so hymn-like that at first I worried that I was simply ripping off the tune of a dimly remembered hymn of some kind. I've never figured out what hymn that might be, though. Maybe it was Radiohead's Creep that was inspiring me? So as I walked home, I sang the new song to make sure I wouldn't lose it, and walked in the door, picked up a guitar, and realized I'd sung a few chords I didn't actually know on guitar. In fact, they were the sort of chord progressions I think you'd normally compose on a keyboard. In my head, I guess I was composing it on piano, which I don't quite play, so I had to mess around a fair bit to find what the guitar chords for it would be. I've never recorded a version where it's played primarily on piano, but I think that's how it would actually work best. From that point on, every time I performed live, I'd end with that song, and people would comment on it. I'm all alone, walking home in darkness, gave my best, but now it's gone. That's what it sounds when someone sings with a blown voice. I thought it was a great sign that they all assumed I hadn't written it. People all asked, where is that last song from? No one knew, 
so I'm pretty sure I wrote it unless Radiohead did. Mark had an odd fascination with this song. He'd get drunk and wouldn't stop bugging me until I sang it. A couple of times he phoned me and had me sing it into the phone. A couple of times, once I'd recorded it, he phoned me and played the recording into the phone to me. Not at Doug's funeral, but afterward, drunk to the point of catatonia, he'd made me sing it then too. A year later, with a bunch of us standing on Doug's grassy grave, he made me sing it again, just as if it were a hymn. I found that the chorus of it, at least, was so convincingly hymn-like that it functioned like one. Well, back in the day, the bass player didn't change his mind about not playing with me afterward, though I did meet Adam Fogo, who was even better. The girl didn't change her mind about not hanging out with me after all, although I met many other women who were more interesting. But Nortel Networks, like many works before and since, changed its mind about laying me off for another year at least, because work had picked up a bit again, so I was able to continue recording at Studio B, which was a relief. Now, I was working on the story of Peter Gray, and this song wasn't on that album, and there was little reason to record it, but I wanted to. And when Chris the Engineer heard me sing it live, he said I had to. Oddly, when it came time to record it, Chris had an appointment and asked me if I'd mind terribly if he left me in the capable hands of 19-year-old engineer Mike, who'd played keyboard for me, voice acted as drunken Ken for me, and often assisted Chris in recording me. But this was to be Mike running the whole show. I said sure, though I really wanted Chris. I had gone to a record store and bought a McFarlane Toys action figure of Gene Simmons from Kiss, and so I brought it in and put it on the monitor in the control room and went into the darkened booth to record. I left the light off to try to hit the mood right. Mike and I were the only two in the studio, Mike recording Mike with a mic. That had never happened before, and it did feel somewhat unfamiliar. Now, I'm a one-take kind of mediocre musician, but with recording a simple acoustic and voice recording to a click track of this newly written song in the recording booth with the light off, I kept messing it up. That never usually happened. I just couldn't get to the end of the song. And that annoying thing happened too. That thing where each time I started doing a take of the song, I ended up messing up closer and closer to the start of it each time. I was getting into more and more and more of a funk, screwing my feelings down tighter each take, tossing myself more fiercely into the song, the mood of the song not really matching that kind of energy, and I kept screwing it up there in the booth with the light off. Mike wasn't sure what to do. He asked if I wanted to stop for a bit, but I told him I wanted another try. Tape was rolling. I was being charged $30 an hour. Well, I finally got through the whole thing, and Mike's voice came through the headphones. Uh, I hate to tell you this, but the tape ran out in the middle. The tape ran out in the middle. I'd been singing the song over and over and over, paying for the time, having a major problem getting to the end, and the whole time, whenever I'd gotten a minute from the song's end, there wasn't going to be enough ADAT tape left to finish it anyway. Normally, that sort of thing gets checked. In the dark booth... I kind of locked down. Suddenly, Chris flung the booth door open and burst in, waving the Gene Simmons doll and shouting, It's Gene Simmons! I gave absolutely no reaction. I didn't even look at him. It's Gene Simmons? He said, mock insistent. Then he went out into the control room and asked what had happened. I snapped out of it. We found and put in a new ADAT tape. And I got through the song, No Trouble, First Try. And that was the take that we kept. I remember I had the one vocal, the one acoustic guitar, played as I sang, and I then very quietly played clean, tremoloed electric guitar chords under that with my thumb. It was good. In these pre-CD days, I insisted on a rough mix to cassette tape to take home to play Dave and Bill, something Chris often avoided doing. 
He liked to either do a mix right and take his time, or not. I wanted him to throw the faders around in some kind of a sensible configuration and slap the whole thing massively down to cassette so I could take it home. Once Bill got home, I played him the tape. He sat for the whole thing, which he almost never did, usually wandering off into the kitchen as songs played and making snacks as he only half listened to them. But with this one, he stayed put. Once it was over, he said, If you add a single damn thing to that song, I'll f***ing kill you, I swear. That was the highest form of praise I could have asked for. Rabbit trail, and not really about that kind of praise at all. I was thinking today about what did work for me about my church upbringing, what suited me. Thing number one is that not only are there two types of church, the one that needs to be able to claim to be happier than normal people, and the one that needs to be able to claim to be righter than normal people, there are also two types of praise and worship. The one in which you sit very quietly and still, focus on your breathing, and meditatively contemplatively go deep inside yourself and talk to God in there, in a peaceful place that can't be touched by the noise and concerns of day-to-day life and all the other people and their expectations. And the one in which you are often on your feet and in motion, jostled by closely packed bodies, thoughtlessly, unselfconsciously, emotionally projecting enthusiasm outward to God in a large group. Some might complain at this characterization, but think about it in terms of product. What is a given church saying it provides you? One kind of church is all about providing instruction and doctrine and knowledge and so on. All about the text. Why else would you put in the time on all of this Bible study? It makes one writer more informed, better taught, more scripturally knowledgeable and grounded, they feel. The other church says that if you come out and manage to get your head into the same space as theirs is, you will feel something profoundly euphoric, something comforting, soothing, and affirming, but also exciting and blissful, something that will ground you emotionally throughout your week. I never know if this is really what they experience or if this is just something they tell people to try to get them to come out. Even before COVID, those church congregations were looking pretty lonely. So the former kind of church, the former kind of praise and worship, suited me to the ground. The latter makes me need to leave if I am to have enough silence and peace to reach out to God in any way I understand. The first time I was in a contemporary, typical modern church and I could feel the service reaching that point where everything was as good as it was going to get, I was trying to worship and I couldn't help inwardly screaming all of the following. No communion? Why did we bother coming this morning then? We're almost done, and you've not made a single mention of that fact that Jesus suffered or died for anyone for any reason or rose again. In fact, you said us on average about 20 or 30 times for each time you made any mention of God or Jesus at all. For a Christian church, there was no significant discussion of Jesus Christ here today at all, though you did mention Star Wars and Avatar. You pray through a PA system with images projected behind you and a soundtrack going in a room with 30 people? What is up with that? Will every single one of you shut the hell up for just two minutes so I can worship? Needless to say, I went home unfulfilled that Sunday morning. Back in the day, when we wanted to talk about what God wanted or said or what happened in the lives of Jesus and Paul, David and Saul and so on, in my church we knew what the words in the Bible said, Though whether we knew what they meant is more of a question. We brought actual Bibles, two actual Bible studies, which we had for hours each week, and the text was king. As in we read a great deal of it, out loud, in the order in which it came, without skipping bits. The words were the point. Our emotional interpretation was not, or wasn't supposed to be. 
Naturally, we went way, way, way too far in terms of our Christian practice being for and about God and not just about us having a good time and getting happy and getting thoroughly caffeinated, sugared up, and filled with gold mountaintop glow. But I like a bit of that meditative gratitude and seriousness still. I like church stuff to be serious. So I wasn't ready for all the joking around and teasing and in-jokes and general self-deprecating nonsense that seemed an important part of this nutritious breakfast at other groups when I visited. So I like that. Seriousness. And one of the best things about our group? Nothing much was about money. We weren't trying to raise money to put in a new coffee bar, a glass escalator, a Noah's Ark-themed children's play area, or multimedia setup. We were never raising money, and we were never spending money or worried that someone might steal some. And no one was paid money. There was not a single person on salary in a Brethren Assembly. No pastor, no worship team leader, nothing. Not even a janitor. We took up a modest collection Sundays, and this went to electric bills and so on, and we sometimes donated to missionaries overseas, but money wasn't really part of much. To do worship, Bible study, and all the rest of it, we needed a room with chairs and one table. I like the simplicity of that. There wasn't a single screen or electronic device in the whole building. No PowerPoint, no church announcements scrolling past, just actual paper Bibles and paper hymn books, ones you can touch, ones that made that crinkling sound and had that smell about them, ones stacked in the back for visitors, ones you could share with a sweetie. Name any chapter and verse in the Bible, and we could all put our fingers right on it in well under a minute. There were no pictures or flowers or anything decorative in our church either just text-only Bible texts on the walls. The idea was that there was nothing external for us to focus on, nothing superficial. For us, like most religious practice in the Eastern world, spirituality was silent, still, and inward, deep, rather than loud. I'll never understand why 30 people need a PA. I'm a high school teacher. I don't have one. I don't need one. Not even to sing and play guitar for 30 people. When we sang at meeting, no one was supposed to do a solo or otherwise in any way draw attention to themselves. We sang together, but we sang for God, like a group of people might sing happy birthday for someone. It was not about a memorable performance. It was about communicating best wishes, gratitude, and affection in an unscripted, sincere way. Oh, we went way, way, way too far in terms of church being a never-ending wake for Jesus, us being far more comfortable with him having suffered and died because he loved us and it being our fault, but I'm dark, gothy, and melancholy and morbid by nature, so that always suited me too. There's a thing I frequently hear Christians of other ilk push to blurt out when told much of anything that's actually in the actual Bible, while defending their own take on Christianity and belief in and relationship with God. They say in frustration, I don't care what the Bible says. I believe. I can't quite deal with that. You're a Christian who doesn't believe the things in the Bible about being a Christian or about Christ. I am trained now in the study of ancient texts in other languages with manuscripts and translations, connotations versus definitions, and language drift, and all of that, so I'm not naive about Bible translations. But a Christianity that never mentions a Christ who suffered and died? A Christianity that makes little use of the Bible except perhaps as a source of decorative scraps of text to stick on PowerPoint slides like clip art of sunsets and mountains? I can't quite deal with that. October's ending cold, October's ending cold this year. So, I had this one recording of this one song from back in the day that Bill said not to mess with at all. 
Naturally, for this album years later, I just re-recorded the whole thing from the beginning. There's something to be said for a more practiced performance of a song, rather than recording it when you've barely just written it. And I added a couple of damn things to it as well, as Bill's not around to comment. I had Tyler play piano, which he'd rented, and didn't normally play. This is Tyler who didn't play piano, not Tyler who does play piano. I also had Tyler play bowed upright bass, which he'd rented and didn't normally play. You never knew what Tyler might have been into playing in a given month, but if you wanted him to play on something, he'd want to play whatever it was he had lying around. And in a month or two, he'd no longer have that instrument around to play for you anyway, having rented something entirely new and unexpected. Beside the electric piano and the upright bass, Tyler also had a mandolin around the place, so he put that on too, while plucking the upright bass along in time. I also did a not very subtle application of the Nashville tuning technique, taking the original acoustic part and making it extremely chimey. I wanted some kind of percussion in it for one part, so I made a kick drum sound of sorts by smacking myself in the chest with my fist and hand clap sounds by slapping my legs. So I EQ'd that carefully and put it in. I always wanted a church choir on this song, and I don't know any church choirs, so I added a bit of one, too, made of just me. I don't know. Bill might have been right. The song works pretty well with nothing added. Would probably work best with just one piano and one voice and a moody reverb. This version, on this album, it has all the stuff in it, all the bells and whistles. I can always do a more stripped-down version for the other album it fits well on to make the two versions different. Here's this one. Mm -hmm. 
was my father who first suggested Let me scrap my car Fix this newer one Now he says he's busy And they both sit rusting And I'm walking home After buses run Maybe someday
maybe someday It's gone.